turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome back to Hour 3. I am Seth Leibson. This is June 23rd, 2022. It is a delight to bring back Dr. Tevi Troy, one of three, one of three people, one of three people who are responsible for my career, although he started the engine and pressed down on the accelerator, so he more than anyone else. Tevi Troy is the former Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services. He is a histo- uh, cultural and presidential historian. His most recent book, Shall We Wake the Pre- – not most recent, but his most relevant book to the discussion we're about to have, Shall We Wake the President? Two Centuries of Disaster Management from the Oval Office. His most recent book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. And I have a lot I want to do with you, Tevi. Welcome back to the show. Well, we could do more if the, my bio didn't fill up the whole segment. So. <laughs> I've only Very just kind. begun with your bio. I've only just begun. Because this story, I want to start here. This is, this is a humdinger uh, to a lot of people. Uh, headline from uh, – I could take you from anywhere. Here's the headline from Bloomberg. Jules vaping products are ordered off the market in the U.S. Company says it's exploring all options, including an appeal. Long-awaited decision by FDA welcomed – by anti-vaping groups. Juul, for those that are unfamiliar with it, is a, va- a nicotine delivery vaping product. Tevi will correct me whenever I say something wrong about this. Uh, that um, that uh, th- that is spelled J-U-U-L. That's if people can't find it, it's because it's spelled J-U-U-L. Tevi, amongst his biographies, uh, used to work with Juul or for Juul as well, and I just wanted to talk to him about it. it seems to me a stunning decision, Tevi. I, you look around at all the things on the market from cigarettes to, my gosh, how many states are legalizing marijuana now, and it just seems odd to be going after Juul here. It, it's not only odd, Seth, but it is, I think, self-destructive and incredibly problematic. I mean, first of all, we live in a free society, and it's just disturbing to me that adults cannot purchase a legal product that has full disclosure about what it is. But the second thing is I know some pe- people, some very close friends, who quit cigarettes, which kill 480,000 Americans every year. They quit cigarettes with Juul, and they've asked me, they've sent me texts, what do I do now? I, I, I know I these people. Now? I know these people. Yes, you're absolutely right, and we'll get into that in a moment, but keep going. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. So here is a product that is not causing destruction and mayhem and doesn't cause people to live homelessly uh, on the streets and lose the, their minds, um, but it has a... a, a social purpose and a public health purpose, which is to get people away from addictive and destructive cigarettes. It is the combustion in cigarettes that is the part that kills people. Nicotine does not cause cancer, as far as we know, but the smoke in cigarettes is what, it's what kills them. And Juul is a product that provides nicotine without the harmful combustion. And, and no smoke. Yeah, and, and it just strikes me as bizarre that the FDA would choose to ban this product at a time when they did allow other vaping products to stay on the market, and they allow cigarettes to stay on the market. And I don't even know why we're talking about allowing uh, adults the ability to purchase a product that they choose to buy. That's where I, w- that's where I was going to go. We'll come back to this it's focus a on— question of 
freedom and human dignity. But it's also a, it's got to be a question of several constitutional infringe, uh, constitutional viol- violations. How can the federal government just go after, seize, and stop the marketing of a legal product and discriminate within the market as a, as well as discriminate within uh, within the product line? I, that seems just it seems like there's about five constitutional violations wrapped up in this. I can't answer that question, Seth, because I, I, I just agree with your premise. There, there is no rational or constitutional basis for a company to, to be banned in, in this way. And uh, it's just, it seems to me the Biden administration is out of control. They banned menthol cigarettes. Again, here's something where adults can choose to purchase a product, even if it is harmful to them. You, you can buy a big soda. You can, you, know, you, you can buy lots of cheese. You can eat at McDonald's every day. I mean, there are things that you are allowed to do as a human adult with agency. And to say that you can't purchase this product that actually has a positive social purpose just to get people off combustible cigarettes in a way that they choose strikes me as bizarre, immoral, unconstitutional. Again, you correct me wherever I'm wrong in what I'm about to say. I don't know where to go from here. The FDA doesn't give companies a lot of alternative options. They just say, we're going to ban and we're going to move on. So that's where we're stuck, it seems. Correct me where I'm wrong on anything I say, Tevi, but, you know, one of the things I have looked into on this as a former cigarette smoker myself is um, is that there is not a single study that I have seen, not one, that looked into the comparative problems of cigarette smoke versus uh, jewel vaping, jewel type vaping. There's not one study that looked into those comparisons that found jewel less safe than cigarettes. Every single one of them said it's more safe than cigarettes. Now, granted, I, I want to be very clear on this. It's not a safe product, uh, generally. It, it has harms, and it's dangerous in, uh, in certain levels, but far, far less dangerous than the proliferation of Marlboro, Winston, and every other cigarette that is uh, ignitable. Um, all true, but the FDA did not want to hear it. Right. I mean, the FDA thinks it has the authority to do this. They don't necessarily have the authority to ban all cigarettes, and that was explicit in the Tobacco Control Act of 2009. If they did, they probably would take the opportunity to ban those, too. Uh, they, you know, they found a way to, to ban menthol cigarettes, which are just a subcategory, um, and they have, I guess, the authority to go after non-combustible products. And so they're taking a regime and making it much stricter on the less harmful product That's than the they f- are on the more harmful product, which is combustible cigarettes. I quote it all the time. I've never thought of it more relevant. Uh, the line of C.S. Lewis's in the screw tape letters, the use of fashions and thought is to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices which we are least in danger. The game is to have everyone running around with fire extinguishers when there's a flood. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. They're going after the lesser danger and running around with fire extinguishers in the middle of a flood. Yeah, and, and they're also discriminating within companies. Yeah. I mean, they seem to say, although they've been kind of quiet about it in terms of a public statement, they've leaked some information with us, but they seem to be saying is that they don't like the fact that Juul was the most popular product at one point, and they're going to hold that against the company in their decision. They're not saying that Juul is more harmful than the other products that they allowed. They're not saying that Juul is less responsible as a company right now, but they're going to hold the legacy of Juul from five years ago when you started to see this increase in youth usage, illegal youth usage, I must add, because every kid who was purchasing that product was doing so illegally that's, that's against right. the that's law. Right. Just like with Marlboro's and Winston's, by the way. Right. 
or beer. Or beer, right. right. So people are illegally using a product. Juul is blamed for it. And, again, even though vaping has gone down by use considerably in the last few years, in large part because of a lot of steps that Juul took to uh, lobby for the cigarette age and the vaping age to be 21, to stop selling flavored products unilaterally, not waiting for the government to ban them. And so now youth usage, illegal youth usage, has gone down considerably, but they're holding it against Juul that in 2016 to 2018 there was an increase in youth usage. And at the time, Juul was the most product. It is no longer, but that didn't stop the FDA from banning it. There's, a, there's another vaping company that's ago. bigger than Juul. There is another vaping company bigger than Juul right now? Did I lose you, Tevi? I might have lost you. All right. Well, we'll, we'll get him back in just a moment. What I wanted to ask is Tevi's position, and when he hears me, I'll, I'll repeat it. It's worth thinking about. It's the question of if the Democratic Party's strategy, this administration's strategy, is to do the unconstitutional, get the win, get the victory, get the stoppage or start it or you know commencement of a program – and then let it work out in the courts over the next couple, three years after the damage is already done, and then they lose, who cares? Is that the Democratic Party strategy? That's what I want to ask Tevi when we come right back, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Tevi Troy, former Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, is joining us, author of um, several books, most recently Fight House Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi, in talking about uh, the uh, the ban on jewel products, assuming as I do that this violates the Constitution in several ways, is this kind of a Democratic Party or this administration's strategy, who cares what the law or the Constitution says, do it anyway, let the courts work it out over three years, take the win, and whether they find it constitutional or not will be long gone by then or the damage will have been done. Henry Kissinger well, yeah, once I mean, that, Henry that, Kissinger that, once said the unconstitutional takes a little longer than the illegal. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. No, it, it, it's true, and it's certainly something the Biden administration is doing, and I think as the likelihood of a red wave uh, taking control over Congress. Uh, in the fall, uh, it becomes more and more certain, then I think that the uh, the Biden administration wants to get more and more done administratively when Congress at this point can't touch it or doesn't want to touch it. Uh, but the, this, this goes back further than this administration. I mean, you remember Barack Obama saying, I have a pen yep. and a phone. Yeah. And he said it specifically regarding something that he said was unconstitutional That's about right. the Dreamers, That's that right. he cannot do unilaterally, and then he did it unilaterally, recognizing that he himself had said that this was unconstitutional, what he was, he was doing, and then he did it. So, so I, yeah, I mean, I think that's what's probably going to happen. You said that it's hard for companies to respond to or within the FDA or make appeals within the FDA. Uh, talk, talk, to, talk to the audience just a little bit about that, just a little if you want. Look, Joel supposedly filed or is filing an injunction uh, to prevent the FDA from taking their product off the market. Think about that. The, the government's just saying we are going to take a product that was legal – that Congress has not banned, that the Constitution has not banned, and we are unilaterally going to remove that from the market. The company is saying, well, we, we think you should be able to do that, and that's, I guess, going to go to the courts. But what are the courts going to say when Congress has given F FDA certain authorities over the years? Congress gives the FDA, and specifically the administrative agencies in general, uh, deference. 
And and then there's also been this PR campaign that millions of dollars spent by companies like uh, Tobacco Free Kids, uh, and they they poisoned the minds of jurors and judges against this company. They think Juul bad, so why would I go along with an injunction that would help this this company that is told that they read in the New York Times is a bad company? Incredible. Incredible, Tevi. Um, well, I had mentioned Henry Kissinger. Can I shift a little bit? Um, I want, and I, and we've been talking health because you have two recent pieces that kind of segue nicely into it. One of them has to do with the anniversary, 50th anniversary of Watergate. The other one has to do with lessons learned from COVID and and basically what HHS and our and our health and human services and our federal government and bureaucracy needs to learn or needs to learn in the wake of uh, the COVID pandemic for the next one. You wrote this big essay in National Affairs on it, uh, Lessons for the Next Pandemic. Maybe we start there, then we'll do a little bit of Watergate and some books on that, if that's okay. Because uh, when you were drilling down, on the lessons for the next pandemic, Tev, you you, kind of did a look backward and a look forward, which is interesting. People didn't know, a lot of people didn't know, that there already was a plan for such a pandemic. You were part and parcel of it. Take a, walk us through this. Walk us through the backward and the forward here. Sure, Seth. In the early 2000s, George W. Bush, the president for whom I worked, read a book by John Barry called The Great Pandemic, and it looked at the 1918 pandemic and what a horrible job Woodrow Wilson, and the rest of the United States government did in responding to it. Now, granted, we didn't have some of the technological tools we have today, such as the ability to rapidly develop a vaccine and to uh, uh, to, to identify, usually, I guess, during testing, with testing. And um, I mean, there are all kinds of things we have now today that we didn't have then. But that's even within those constraints, Woodrow Wilson did a horrible job. He allowed the disease to spread. He suppressed conversations ab- about it. And he even knew that troop transports to Europe were killing American troops and spreading the disease, and he did nothing about it. And, and of the 116,000 U.S. soldiers who died in World War One, 43,000 of them died from the flu. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it that is, amazing? staggering. Yeah, staggering. Wow. So, I, so President Bush said, hey, we could do better. And he put together a plan that would look at a variety of potential pathogens that we could face and how to deal with it. And he created with the help of a lot of smart people within the U.S. government that I, that I worked with, a kind of three-layer defense to protect the U.S. One was robust monitoring abroad to see if there were problematic passages that might come into the country. Second was a regime of testing, tracking, tracing, isolating to prevent diseases that were harmful in other countries from spreading here. And we saw with Ebola back in 2016, uh, even uh, 2014, I mean, e- even though the response wasn't perfect, we did curtail the spread of Ebola in the U.S. and prevented it from spreading like it was doing in West Africa because we had the tools and know how to do so. And the third was the creation of a strategic national stockpile that would house countermeasures so that we would, if a disease did break out here, we would be able to push back against the disease. We might have vaccines or we might have antiviral. So let's fast forward to the coronavirus uh, disease, which uh, struck in early 2020. Uh, I think we did a bad job of monitoring what was going on in China, in part because we took the word of the Chinese government on what was going on, and we weren't attuned to the reality of what was happening, that it was a, sp- a disease that was spreading asymptomatically. It was spreading person to person. It was spreading through air. 
and we just weren't aware of those things, and we didn't, we weren't paying paying close enough attention, and we were uh, trusting Chinese assurances about what was happening and what was not happening. The second thing is we completely bollocked up the ability to create the test, and we gave the CDC way too much power and authority, not only to create the test, and it's really not expert at mass marketing uh, biomedical products like that, uh, but also in conjunction with the FDA, which, you know, is not, um, I'm not so impressed with them on the jewel front. I'm also unimpressed with the way they were CDC's enforcer on preventing other entities from developing tests, including to the point where they were telling an entity in Washington State, stop what you are doing. This, this, um, this public health lab was trying to create a test to identify who had coronavirus. Meanwhile, the CDC was creating an awful, flawed, not workable test. And the FDA, with CDC together in cahoots with each other, were telling other entities, don't create the test, because CDC is going to handle it, and CDC did not handle it. So then the disease gets out of control in the U.S., because we can't test who has it and, and see who has it and who doesn't. And then the third thing is the strategic national stockpile, which is supposed to have countermeasures. And even though I warned in my book, Shall We Wake the President, which you kind of mentioned earlier, I specifically warned about coronavirus and said this is the problem and we have sure. nothing in the stockpile. We had, the, the, you know, that was still true four or five years later, and we were unprepared for, we didn't have a vaccine, even though the technology was available. We did not have uh, any antivirals to deal with coronavirus, and so we were completely caught unawares. We, we didn't know it was coming. We didn't, we didn't, we couldn't test for it when it came, and we couldn't push back against it when it spread. So uh, that was the situation we were in, even though we spent a lot of money and a lot of time thinking about what the plan should be. Tevi Troy is our guest. We're going to take a quick commercial break. I remember, I remember when Jim Garrity was, was reading your book. A great deal. I, I found it incredibly frustrating, and that's why I wrote the article trying to figure out what we should do in the future if this happens again. Well, we'll take a quick break and come back to that. I remember uh, Jim Garrity said uh, upon reading your book, Tevi Troy is a far stunken a genius when he read that you were already predicting a problem with coronaviruses. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Tevi Troy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Tevi Troy, former uh, Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, is our guest. And meatloaf uh, lover. And, and yes, meatloaf lover as well. That's right. We've spent a lot of time uh, talking meatloaf lyrics. He passed this year, right? That was this year that he yeah, yeah that moment. he checked out. TeviTroy.org, if you want to uh, keep up with his writings. We're talking about a piece of his in National Affairs on Lessons Learned from the Pandemic. Tevi, um, the politics, too— Okay, uh, you're right. You, you, you show how politics was playing in and out of the COVID pandemic. And it's, I guess, suppose, I, I suppose it's impossible to take politics out of politics. But we did kind of want better here, didn't we? And I, and, and, and the suspicion that we weren't being told the truth was, uh, accelerated and energized by, you know, people like Anthony Fauci when they were misleading on masks, when they were misleading on vaccines, when they were misleading on herd immunity. At the same time, uh, physicians, and you mentioned some of them in your piece as well, like Jay Bharasharia at Stanford, et cetera, Scott Atlas, when they were talking with contrary points of view, they were not only censured, but they were censored. And I, that just seems to me you're not only limiting information, you're building additional mistrust, and you're extending problems that we didn't need to extend. Some of the stuff Jay and Scott and others 
uh, we're talking about, I think could have been headed off. I'm talking about uh, the the mental health acceleration, the mental health accelerated problem with our youth. I mean, a lot of that could have been headed off if they were allowed to to speak freely and be heard uh, openly. Uh, agree? Disagree? Yeah, and, and even if you disagree with them, you know, let, let's have the argument. Yeah. Let, let, let's hash it out in public. I mean, this is the problem of the Woodrow Wilson administration experience. They try to suppress information, and it doesn't go well. So you know, I, I don't agree with everything that any of these doctors said. I, you know, I agree with a lot of things that some of them said and you know, different things. But you know, let, let's, hear, let's hear them out. Let's have the conversation. And that's what we do in a free society. We don't ban products. We don't cancel people. We don't say you, you can't say this in, in our free society. And, uh, and it's just disturbing to me, this, um, this lack of liberalism, small L liberalism. I'm not talking about you know, um, LBJ, FDR, welfare state stuff. I'm, I'm talking about the ability to have a conversation in a pluralistic society where different people are allowed to have different perspectives and they hash it out in an ordered political way. I uh, I think part of this also has to be uh, put on the um, on the shoulders of some of our social media companies. I don't know if you knew Eleanor McCants Katz or do do know her. I don't know if you did or do know her. She was the first first assistant secretary of health and human services for mental health. She was in the Trump administration. I, they created that position, I believe, in the Obama administration. But she was the first. Uh, quite a credentialed uh, lady, uh, an MD in psychiatry and a Ph.D. in epidemiology, and she was warning about the mental health crisis for youth with the school shutdowns. Uh, and so I w- when I was giving monologues on this, Tevi, uh, in 2020 and 2021, uh, we were posting them on YouTube, and YouTube would take down every monologue I gave on COVID. And we finally reached out and got a live person, and they said, you can only use government sources when you talk about COVID. So I decided to read an entire speech verbatim by Eleanor McCants Katz on this with no editorial or commentary from me, and they took it down. And when we said, I don't know how you get to more of a government source than a sec- assistant secretary of HHS on the topic, they just didn't care. It was so arbitrarily weird what social media was doing and what this follow the science notion, this follow the science shibboleth meant, that you couldn't help but have adults go mad over this as well, quite frankly. Yeah, and look, it's the arbitrariness yeah. of this all right. that is the most disturbing. It's kind of like the arbitrariness of the Juul decision. Right. I mean, how do they decide that we're not going to allow this product to be on the market, but Views, which is now the number one product in the vapor space, that's allowed to stay on the market. And you know, it's a little weird that the you know, they're, the FDA is basically saying only company, only tobacco company products, whether it's cigarettes or vape from the Cumpson Tobacco companies can, can do it. So that's why in the arbitrariness of when social media decides to ban someone or not ban someone. I mean, why, you know, why is the Ayatollah allowed to spout anti-Semitic right. things when, you know, the former president says things, some of which with, I, with which I disagree, yeah. but he's not allowed on Twitter and, and the Ayatollah is allowed on and, yeah. and President Xi and Putin are allowed on Twitter. I mean, I just don't understand where are you drawing the lines and how do you draw the lines? Okay, well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. And also, I, I do want to get your sense on the 50th anniversary of Watergate. Watergate was, um, I don't know, I guess it was my initiation into politics. Uh, my parents tell me that's what got me interested in it and... I think I've read almost every biography of Nixon there is. I got interested in it because the Watergate hearings preempted Captain Kangaroo, and that drove me angry, drove me mad. But it made me learn a lot about politics. Tevi Troy's our guest. We'll be right back and talk Watergate with him.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Y-Refi. If you're interested in a really unique investment opportunity, what they are offering is a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. They're in the business of helping people dig out of debt, doing so the right way by actually paying off their their debts. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm. As I say, it's run by great people. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, and then R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 855-316-3087. That's 855-316-3087. Dr. Tevi Troy, author and uh, presidential and cultural historian, is our guest uh, his most recent book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. I knew you would have something to say about Watergate, Tevi, after its 50th anniversary just commenced. You did a great piece in the Washington Examiner on it. Watergate's ghost. What, are we, what, what, what did we learn after 50 years? What, do, what are you writing about here? Well, what I was writing about was how Watergate is still with us, how it had an impact on all the subsequent administrations. Some more than others. Obviously, the Ford administration comes to being as a direct result of Watergate, and Ford's pardon of Nixon, while it probably healed the country, also probably sealed Ford's political doom. And then you go to the Carter administration, where Carter's desire to make an administration not like Nixon's led to a disordered, dysfunctional administration that didn't even have a chief of staff and suffered as a result. So I go through each subsequent president and I show how Watergate had an impact on their administrations. And I actually was privileged to speak at the Ford Library last week on their, the kickoff of their 50th anniversary celebrations uh, on this idea. And the article is uh, the cover story in the Washington Examiner this week. So uh, I, I think there's just a lot still to learn from Watergate. I'm happy to be reading Garrett Graff's book right now, Watergate, which is a fascinating 800-page look at the entire scandal, and it's kind of synthesized. I know you said you've read every biography. But I think I have. I think all I have. the books in a very interesting and compelling way that, that's very readable. And you know, I, I just love the fact that and he writes it you know, post the discovery that Mark felt with Deep Throat. And in the book, he says that Nixon said that the leaks to the Washington Post are coming from Mark Felt, the number two at FBI. Now, he did not say Deep Throat because we didn't know the concept, or, or Nixon didn't know the concept of Deep Throat at the time. Right. He just knew there were leaks coming to the Washington Post. He didn't know Woodward Bernstein or anything like that. He just knew Washington Post had these leaks, and he said that they're coming from Felt. And when a new FBI director comes on, he warns the guy that Felt is a leaker. Right. Right. And Nixon knew, even if the rest of the country was supposedly flummoxed about this question, this mystery for 30, 40 years. Nixon knew where the leaks were coming from, and I'm surprised he didn't do more to stop it. One of the interesting things about it, and I think he was known as a great leaker, you'll straighten me out if I'm wrong, is that almost everyone in the almost everyone in the Nixon administration became tainted, but one of them who didn't was Henry Kissinger, still with us, and you know he, he walked out of that unscathed. Was he just so sophisticated a political player, or what? How is it that he became a hero and almost everyone else became a goat? Well, I would say I would agree with you with the premise that Kissinger was unscathed by Watergate, but I'm not sure I would call him a hero. Okay. Certainly in the 70s, I and mean, you had um, people like Christopher Hitchens talking about how he was a war criminal. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he was hated by a lot of people back then. Now, over time, his reputation, I would say, has improved and it's, it's mellowed. And he's now the Buddha-like figure you see on the National News. But, I mean, he was a sharp-elbowed, thin-skinned bureaucratic player at the time, but he was also savvy enough to stay away from the operational side 
of Watergate. And when I say operational side, it, part of the problem with Watergate, or part of the, the impetus for it, was the desire to stop national security leaks about which Kissinger complained. Right. He was so, the one who was early on pushing on this with regard to Pentagon Papers, wasn't he? Yeah, he was very upset about the... He said, and it wasn't about the Nixon administration, by the way. Right. I want to remind people, the Pentagon right. Papers... Right, Nixon's not implicated. Nixon's right. not mentioned. Right, right. <laughs> right. It was about the Johnson and Kennedy administrations. Right, which, but, which Kissinger had a lot more to do with right. than Nixon ever did. Right, <laughs> right. But Kissinger said, you allow this to go, then government's over. Right, and, and Kissinger was, was talking to Nixon during Watergate about how you have to protect the presidency. Right. And when Nixon at one point even suggests resigning, Kissinger pushes back at him and right. says, no, you can't resign. We have to protect the presidency. Right. So um, I, I wouldn't say Kissinger did any of the watergate things that led to the cover-up, but, um, but he definitely encouraged Nixon in the hunt for leaks, and he definitely encouraged Nixon in trying to hold on to his position. And, and some of those things did lead to what we know as Watergate. And Watergate is basically the creation of a series of people, leakers, I mean, leak hunters in, in the form of the, uh, the plumbers who engaged in a variety of political dirty tricks. They were funded by the Nixon campaign, the Committee to Reelect the President, and then once, through sheer incompetence, they are captured in their attempts to burgle the Watergate Hotel, uh, in the offices of the Democratic National Committee, the cascading efforts by people within the administration to cover up what happened that leads to the scandal. So it's hard to say that Watergate is any one thing, but it is that sequence of events that uh, that led to Nixon's downfall. Tevi, a lot of other histories have... It's not the burglary per se. Got it. It's not the funding per se, and it's not the... The cover-up, per se, but it's all of those things together that led to what we now know as Watergate. Tevi, one of the interesting things about all the history that's come out of other administrations is that you look back at Watergate, maybe it wasn't so bad compared to some of the other things. Was it as bad? Did it deserve all that it got, given other 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 transgressions by other White Houses previous to, 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 to Richard Nixon's tenure? So, so let's say maybe it wasn't the worst thing a president ever did, but it certainly was problematic and something that should not be done in our constitutional system. And you, you, you shouldn't have a president with a private army of leak hunters that are funded by his campaign doing that kind of thing. And then when when it does happen, you shouldn't have the administration covering it up right. uh, and trying to use the FBI and CIA to do so. So, uh, yeah, and Watergate was a problem. And, and I don't think we do ourselves any, any good in suggesting it wasn't, but it's by far the worst thing from a yeah, no, right. And, and, and that's what people are, that's what people are kind of ratcheting it up as the new baseline when whenever uh, some kind of scandal touches an administration, Iran-Contra under Reagan, uh, Ukraine phone call with Trump, whatever it is you get, uh, you get you, you get this is worse than Watergate. It is. It uh, has become, John Dean, right. you know, in particular, was the guy who was the happiest and always ready to scream worse than Watergate, whatever right. happened, including when you know, he just said the general approach toward secrecy in the George W. Bush administration, which I served, was worse than Watergate. Yeah. I think it's just a ridiculous... <laughs> yes. Yes. It's as ridiculous as, as, as well, it's it's sickly as ridiculous as worse than Hitler, which we've also heard as well, right, uh, yeah. in, in, in our politics over the last several years. Well, Tevi, I can't thank you enough uh, for all of this. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna con- to convene some constitutional attorneys on the, uh, on the Jewel issue. And um, and get back to you on that. This is it's a fascinating thing to me, and and I think it was predicted by C.S. Lewis, 
and it's unfortunate because he was writing to the um, in in the screw tape letters. He was writing, of course, on how the devil can succeed in this world, and uh, one of them is these kinds of inconsistencies: going after the vice we are least in danger of, while letting flourish and thrive the one that is causing the most danger. When there is a flood. You don't reach for the fire hoses. That's what this administration is doing. Never mind all the other problems we're dealing with. Anyway, Tevi Troy, presidential historian. Check out his books. Check out his essays, tevitroy.org, Fight House, Shall We Wake the President, you name it. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. want to thank Balance of Nature for sponsoring portions of this show. There are fruits and veggies I take every single day. 100% pure, potent plant power. Boost your energy and your health and your immunity with nothing but fruits and vegetables. That's what you get with Balance of Nature. Ten servings in one daily dose. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. You know how much I love rhetoric and speech around here. It's just coming off the interview with Tevi thinking of Nixon. Uh, if you guys want to see one of the greatest extemporaneous speeches in the 20th century, uh, go to your favorite video service online and check out Richard Nixon's farewell to the White House staff. His farewell to the – not his resignation speech, which was aired on television the night before, but saying goodbye to the White House staff. It's, uh, he delivered it on August 9, 1974. It's one of the greatest speeches ever given, full of lessons in politics that he did not take. Can I close the show with it? Always give your best. Never get discouraged. Never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. Such a pregnant lesson, folks. The one that would have saved him if he had learned it. And then he, sum up, uh, and then he uh, uh, summed up. And so we leave with high hopes and good spirit and with deep humility and with very much gratefulness in our hearts. I can only say to each and every one of you, we come from many faiths. We pray perhaps to different gods, but really the same God in a sense. And I want to say to each and for each and every one of you, not only will we always remember you, not only will we always be grateful to you, but always you will be in our hearts and you will be in our prayers. And, of course, the big takeaway from that speech, the big takeaway, only if you have been in the deepest of valleys can you ever know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain. Thank you, folks, for spending some of your day with us. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class is dismissed.